Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We continue our two-week break from our series in Mark for Holy Week. We will be resuming that amazing journey next Sunday. Well, those who have lived any number of years know that certain events in history are ones that capture the attention of a generation. And they even define a generation. World War II, they are that generation. The moon landing, the assassination of JFK, every generation has a moment. For many in our generation, that day was September 11th, 2001, a day that, as FDR said of the attack on Pearl Harbor, would live in infamy, a terrorist attack on our own soil that shook not only the ground of the nation, but shook the very foundation of people's lives. That following Sunday, September 16th, 2001, the first Sunday following the attacks, some of you may remember, the churches were packed. Not an empty seat in the house, standing room only. People were rocked. People were shook. Was this the end of the world? Was this God's judgment? Their lives felt so very frail, so very fleeting, so temporary. Well, on that day, one very notable body of believers at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, most of you know, pastored by Dr. John MacArthur, opened its doors to a flood of over 5,000 people into the church that morning. Los Angeles wanted to know what this prominent preacher would have to say about the terrorist attacks on our nation. Many that morning had never darkened the church of the door of a church, but they were looking for something to hold on to. They were looking for direction and for comfort. What would this pastor say on this Sunday, September 16th, 2001? As he arose and walked to the pulpit, a silence gripped this enormous auditorium. And Dr. MacArthur said, quote, We are here this week to talk about an event that changed all of our lives. It's altered the way we view the world, and it will impact us for the rest of our lives. And that event, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not what many were expecting to hear, and yet it instantly realigned every believing heart that heard it. There is an event in history that has eclipsed all events, one that defines all the others. John Calvin said, quote, the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith, and without it, the hope of external life is extinguished. Indeed, Paul tells the church at Corinth, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Meaning that it all hinges hinges on this. The door of our salvation swings on the hinge of the resurrection. Without it, we are without hope. The door to reconciliation with God does not swing open, but remains forever shut. 
Yet in this, in the death and resurrection of Christ, John tells us that the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, because, beloved, none of us loved God. Scripture says that we were all haters of God. It was not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, meaning the satisfaction for our sins. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Glory to God. This is good news. This is the euangelion. This is the gospel. And this cry is called good news because it deals with our sin. Our greatest nemesis, death and hell no longer hold sway and dominion for those who have come in repentance and faith to Christ. Spurgeon declared, Christ came into the world to take sin upon his shoulders and to carry it away, hurling it into the Red Sea of his atoning blood. Christ... The scapegoat took the sin of his people upon his own head and bore it all the way to the wilderness of forgetfulness where it will be searched for and shall be found no more forever. This is good news for it tells that the cancer at the vitals of humanity has been cured. That the leprosy which rose even to the very brow of manhood has been taken away. Christ has filled a better stream than the river Jordan and now says to the sons of men, go wash and be clean. And so the command is to us. The good news is to us this morning as we look to our text in Galatians. And we will see that there is a truth of the resurrection we must internalize, indeed, if we are to be washed. There is a washing that must take place if we are to be clean. As we look to our text, let me share with you where we are heading this Easter. Sometimes knowing the destination makes the journey a little bit easier. The core truth of our text this morning is this. If there is to be a resurrection, there must first be a crucifixion. If there is to be a resurrection, there must first be a crucifixion. You cannot live until you die. So with that, let's look to the Word of God. Galatians 2.20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this day of great hope, we ask that you would make our hearts tender. We ask that you would till the fallow ground and soil of our hearts that we might know what is the length and depth and height and breadth of the love of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would attend to your word this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. Well, there are a few verses in Scripture that are, well, what many would consider to be anthem verses. Verses that you would want on your tombstone. Verses that define a person's walk. Verses that encapsulate the whole of the Christian life in one beautiful sentence. 
And here we have such a striking example. But the beauty of this verse, while it certainly sparkles on the surface, possesses an even deeper and an even beautiful well of richness as we begin to peel back the layers of what Paul is saying. Of course, in all things, context is king. And here is no exception. We recall that the book of Galatians was written to a church in Galatia that had been overrun by Judaizers. These were men who had come in, as Paul says, to spy out the liberty that we have in Christ. They were trying to bring the weight of the law back onto those who had received freedom in Christ. They desired to set aside and to cheapen the grace of God lavished upon them in salvation and replace it with works. The faith, once and for all delivered to the saints, was being perverted into a system of rules that were to be kept, of a circumcision that was to be had, instead of a work of the heart, where Christ comes into a man and a woman or a child, and he removes their hearts of stone, and he gives them hearts of flesh, where he makes them new creations, giving them new life, a place where dead men are made alive again. These men had snuck into the Galatian church and said, no, that's not it. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law of Moses. Instead of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, it was an infiltration of another gospel, a gospel of works. Come earn Jesus. Come keep his favor by keeping these rules. This was a different gospel than the one delivered to them by Paul. It was a bewitching gospel. It was a false gospel. It was a gospel that desired to put Christianity into the same category as every other religious system ever concocted by man. There is one common thread to all religious movements ever devised and created in the fallen hearts of men. You do something for God, and in turn he will do something for you. You do something for God and you earn favor from that deity. It all begins with you. Perform for that God and that God now responds to you. Take any religion in history, it is this way. Followers do any number of things to garner this favor with their deity. They must work to earn favor or to assuage wrath or to bring them sunshine or rain for crops. Search your history books down to the most minute religious movement and you will find this common thread. You work, you earn deity response. All religions except for one. Except for one. The gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel of redemption that did not begin with us, with a work of us. It began with God. We can no more earn God's favor than a dead fish can swim upstream. But God, in his infinite love and desire, in the fullness of time, he broke into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. And while we were yet sinners, not workers trying to earn favor, while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be reconciled and brought into a relationship with a holy God. No human heart could ever concoct a story like that. Not in a thousand lifetimes. No, when man invents a religion, it begins with works. You work first, you sacrifice first, and then your deity will respond which is exactly what the Judaizers here in Galatia were doing. That's a different gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. A 
8 and 9 are known that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know in that moment that the curse of the law has been removed. Paul writes to the Galatians with crystal clarity, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 The law only has the power to condemn, beloved. It only has the power to grind to powder and to ultimately destroy what it touches in judgment because no one can keep it. The law cannot save, for the law made nothing perfect, the writer of Hebrews proclaims. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, beloved, if we are to introduce the law, if we are to, to introduce works as was happening in Galatia, we flip the gospel on its head. It's no longer in the beginning God, it's now in the beginning man. We have delivered, we've been delivered from the law as believers. The law no longer has a claim on our life. The legal demands of the law, which stood against us, have been nailed to the cross. Paul is saying we are now dead to the law, which leads us to our first triumphant first line of our text here. I have been crucified with Christ. We could camp right here for the rest of Resurrection Sunday. Paul tells us before resurrection, there must be a crucifixion. Or do you not know, Romans 6, 3, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, were baptized into his crucifixion. It was the righteous demands of the law that required sin be atoned for. And without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins, Hebrew 9, 22. It was the righteous standard of the law that needed to be satisfied. It was the law's demands for our sin that slain our Lord on that cross. Thus, if we are crucified with Christ, as Paul says he is crucified with Christ, it is the law that has slain us. Paul is dead. We are dead. And it is the law that has slain us. But what does that even mean? Lanesville, 2022, Easter Sunday, what does that mean? Romans tells us that it is through the law that we obtain knowledge of sin. It is by the law that we knew sin. And now we know, Romans 3.19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. In other words, you've got me. You've got me. Your law, O oh Lord, has me dead to rights. It is the legal requirements of the law that crucified my Savior. And if I am to approach Christ, to be baptized with him into his death, it is through the knowledge of the law that I come. It is the law that is the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. Galatians 3.24 the law is designed to show me that I can do nothing to save myself. The law that Peter calls a mirror that we look into. And it shows us who we are. That we're not good people. 
that we're wretched people. Like the bathroom mirror we look at in the morning that shows us exactly what we look like. The law says that I'm a liar. The law says I'm a thief. The law says that I have lust and I have greed in my heart. And Paul says that my mouth is stopped. The law has slain me. To be crucified with Christ is to be slain in the heart by the law. The Christian is one that has of first order had the perfect law of God do a work on their heart. Before a heart can be resurrected, it must first be crucified. That's what repentance is. It is coming into agreement with God that we have been convicted by his law and we know that we've broken it. That's what drives us to the Savior. That's what sends us fleeing into the arms of eternal safety. Scripture says it is the goodness of God that drives us to repentance. Yet in our culture today, when, when we hear the word goodness, we tend to think gentleness, maybe even softness, being malleable or approachable, perhaps easygoing. Goodness tends to be a soft word in our ear, doesn't it? It's a common phrase. God is good. And indeed he is. But what is it about his goodness that drives men to repentance? In the realm of salvation, it is God's justice that makes him good. That he has made a way through Christ to be both just and the justifier. That according to God's eternal plan and good pleasure, the Son of God, equal with the Father and the exact representation of his nature, willingly left the glory of heaven. That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin and was born the God-man. And he walked on this earth in perfect obedience to the law of God. And then in the fullness of time, he was rejected by men and crucified. And on the cross, he carried the sins of his people. He was forsaken by God. He suffered divine wrath and he died condemned. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead as a public declaration that his death was accepted. The punishment for sin was paid. The demands of justice were satisfied and the wrath of God was appeased. That's the goodness of God that draws men to repentance. This truth, this knowledge of what the law says is our true condition crucifies the heart. And it must be so before there can be a resurrection there must be a crucifixion. I've been crucified with Christ. My mouth has been stopped by your righteous law. As they pierced your side on the cross, so my heart is pierced through with sorrow for sin. Just as blood and water flowed from the side of our Savior, out of our pierced hearts flows gratefulness unto God for an immeasurable debt that's been paid on our behalf. Glory to God. The prince of preachers proclaimed, I am dead. The law has killed me, cursed me, slain me, and I am therefore free from its power. Amen. When it comes to the matter of justification, when it comes to me being justified before God, the law has no hold if I'm crucified with Christ. There's no charge against me. If a man were to be convicted and killed for a capital crime, should he now rise from the dead, the law would have no hold on him. 
The debt's been paid. There's no more legal demands. I've been crucified with Christ. The law slay me. But I'm made alive in Christ. The law has no claim upon me. What glorious news. I hope you came today to hear good news. If you're in Christ this morning, through his death and resurrection, you are free. And you are alive. Paul goes on in our text, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. Zoom in on the shortest word here, I I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The Greek word here for I is hego. That's where we get our word ego from. It's that part of yourself that acts and feels and thinks. That is crucified with Christ. That the way you now act and feel and think might be resurrected. That you might have the mind of Christ. This means... John Brown writes, quote, that I am redeemed from the law and its curse. He having become a curse for me, nevertheless I live. Christ died and in him I died. Christ revived and in him I revived. I am a dead man with regard to the law, but I am a living man in regard to Christ. The life that I have now is not the life of a man under the law, but the life of a man delivered from the law. Having died and risen again with Christ Jesus, Christ's righteousness justifies me. Christ's spirit animates me. My relations to God are his relations. My, the influences under which I live are the influences under which he lives. Christ's views are my views. Christ's feelings, my feelings. He's the soul of my soul, the life of my life. My state, my sentiments, my feelings, my conduct, all are the mind of Christ. I live by faith. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. My old man is dead. He was crucified when I came to Christ. And now having been baptized into his death, I am raised to life with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Notice who is the actor here. It's Christ. Glory to God. We are not speaking about a believer living for Christ. We are talking about Christ living through the believer. Amen. Amen. Oh, let's get that again. Paul is not speaking about a believer living for Christ. We are talking about Christ living through the believer. We must get this. I've got some wonderfully awful news for you, beloved. You and I cannot live the Christian life. You can't. But Christ in you can. That's the point. It reminds someone of the man who, who bought a brand new car, let's call it a Ferrari, one of the most powerful engines on earth, and yet this man has never even owned a car in his life, and he was ignorant of the incredible power that the engine possessed, and he spent the rest of his life pushing the car around. What would you say and think of that man when you saw him pushing his perfectly good Ferrari down the road? You fool. Put the key in the ignition. Turn on the engine. That's where the power is. If you are lugging around your list of rules, trying to please a God in the sky, try, striving to earn and earn, even if you call him Jesus, 
When you look up and pray, it's not the Jesus of Scripture. That's not the gospel delivered to us. The believer has been crucified with Christ. We are dead. We, where we were once desired to pridefully earn our salvation and right standing with God, that person is dead. You are now raised with Christ. It is now Christ that lives within you. It is now Christ that will perform. It is Christ's strength and power in which you live and move and have your being. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is all of Christ. All of Christ. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to see whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Look at Paul's words to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? What's the richness? What's the glory? Paul tells us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have a risen Savior who is alive. Because he is alive, because he is working in and through his people, we have real hope. Do we really think we could live this life. No, beloved. This Christian life takes resurrection power to live. It is the height of pride and hubris to start down this journey of faith in our own strength. That's a different gospel. Indeed, not only is it pride to believe that we can do what only Christ can do in us, but it is impossible. It's impossible. It's a path that ends in legalism and a hard heart. It's a path that ends in habitual, continual sin that you can't seem to shake. If that marks your life or describes your struggle, perhaps you're running on your own steam and dead men don't run. If you're crucified with Christ, you're dead. And if you're crucified with Christ, you are resurrected with Christ. It is now Christ working in you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Oh, what good news to us this Easter. We are not the fuel and the ability to live the life that God has called us to live. It is Christ in you. Oh, if we can grasp the freedom in this statement... If we can lodge it deep down in the recesses of our soul as a tangible daily truth, it will remove a burden that you've carried for far too long. Beloved, God did not transform your old self. He didn't reform your old self. He didn't change or alter your old self. He crucified it. And now, look back to our text. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Look at Paul's transformation from death to life, being one who persecuted, who killed and imprisoned Christians. That old man was crucified, raised to new life in Christ. Doesn't God always choose the least likely? If you've never come to Christ because you don't feel adequate or you feel the sin is too great in your life, oh, you have no idea what I've done, you may come. 
You may run to the cross. Paul did. When the angel of the Lord passed over the children of Israel and Egypt, he didn't look to see who was worthy inside the house. He just looked for the blood on the door. Nothing but the blood. But the cost is a crucified self. Before resurrection, there must be crucifixion. Count the cost. Perhaps you've thought of yourself as a Christian for many years. But this reality Paul speaks of does not define your life. A bloody crucifixion of your old man was not the gate that you passed through on your way to him. Perhaps you haven't seen a radical change in your life since you professed a faith in Christ. There is no better day than Resurrection Sunday to come in repentance and faith. We see that Paul speaks about the reality of his life now. Now that the law has hung over him, has weighed him in the balance and pierced him through. He tells us about his life now. The life which I now live in the flesh. It's worth noting here that often when we see the term flesh in scripture, it's speaking about our sin nature as being in the flesh. But here Paul is, Paul is saying that we're still in bodily flesh, meaning we're not in a glorified body. Here we dwell. We are on this side of eternity. But this in nature, though still present on this side of eternity, it has no hold. It has no hold. Looking even closer, when is Paul living this life? Look to our text. It says, now. We are talking about our present condition. We're not speaking in theories. We're not speaking in vague generalities of someday. This life I live now. This change, this dependency on Christ, this life, this new man, it is now. It will impact the man or woman you are when you walk out of church this very day. There is no easing of conscience by putting off till tomorrow. The life which I live now in the flesh. The life. Paul has life. Resurrected life. And he has it now. What does that look like? What does it look like when Christ lives in us, the hope of glory, when it is Christ who works in and through us, when it is Christ who is the fuel and the fire and the spark to get us home? Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. One theologian writes, quote, in one sense, believers are to live as imitators of Christ. But Galatians 2.20 teaches us that this new life is more than imitation. It is incarnation. Christ lives in me, in this living and loving union with Christ that enables me to moment by moment overcome the world, to overcome the flesh and the devil, and to accomplish God's good and perfect will in my life. I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, for those who are regulars at Harrison Hills, you know we love our Greek. And here this life, this act of living Paul is speaking about is given in the present tense. Meaning that it has occurred and it continues still. So if we're to expand out that verse using this tense, it would read like this. The life which I am now presently and continually living in the flesh, I am continually living by faith in the Son of God. Why does that matter, Lanesville, 2022? 
Because faith is not a flu shot. It's not a one and done. This life Paul lives by faith is continual. If you walked an aisle as a child or prayed a prayer long ago and nothing changed in your life, you went on living as before, you were not born again. You were not born again. The life and genesis of the believer comes when they are crucified with Christ, when they are raised to new life in him, and that takes resurrection power. But the life of faith that comes from that fountain is endless, and it only builds momentum and steam the longer you swim in its waters, where you behold the beauty of your risen Savior every day, and it becomes more precious and more sweet. Why? Because we see the end of our text. Because he loved me. And he gave himself up for me. This is agapeo love. Which means to love unconditionally. And sacrificially. It reflects the very love that God himself is. It's unearned love. It's a love that is still given whether or not it's received or whether or not it's returned. It's pure in every way. And Christ gave himself up for me. He gave himself over to be crucified. Before resurrection, there must be crucifixion. Paul told the Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation, and par- participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection. Beloved, he is alive. The tomb is empty. Every disciple who witnessed this truth with their very own eyes both suffered and died for their testimony. And if Christ be alive, he is all-powerful and all-consuming. The gospel call this morning is not something you add to your life. It is a replacement of your life. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Happy Easter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the tomb is empty. We awake in hope. We walk out our daily life in hope. We lie down in hope. And we rest in hope. Heavenly Father, if you did not rise, if Christ did not rise, we are a people most to be pitied. But you did. And Lord, our gathering here today, the fellowship of our spirit, the oneness of unity, magnifies that truth in our presence here today. You are risen. We serve and we worship a risen creator, a risen God who has paid an indefinite and unmeasurable debt. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us this week. Lord, those that, that are traveling for Easter weekend, we ask you would bring them back to us safely. You are a risen God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.